Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. are invited to join Lori at the Kids Church Day at 5. This week we start 10 sermons on what is classically called one sermon, a sermon on the mountain. I was thinking we had just spent um, probably about 12 weeks, I don't know exactly, on the book of Deuteronomy, and that, that book is about 30 chapters long, and that felt like about right. We could have maybe, I could have maybe used one or two more, but um, but then we get to the Sermon on the Mount, and I have ten Sundays, and I'm like, that does not seem like enough. Um, there's so much depth and meaning to each of these passages. I mean, and one of my friends who helps me with these things, I emailed him, and I said, how many sermons do you think you could do max? And he's like, I could do a whole year. And he was like, if we did one on each of the Beatitudes, and each of the Beatitudes, which, which Chris read for us today, have these ties to Psalms and Old Testament texts and all these other things that would expand their meaning. When you hear them, they're not just like one simple thing, but they're, they're many things. And so, you know, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be doing the, what, the chapter 6, this better righteousness of almsgiving, prayer, and um, uh, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting in one week. <laughs> you could easily divide all those out into several weeks. Um, and as many of you know who were here a long time ago when we came up with this, uh, this in Colorado, this is in heaven here, and if you haven't received a poster of it, you're free to take one after the service there where we'll be back, is, is we did about eight or eight to 12 weeks on the Lord's Prayer. Um, so you can really stretch that out too. What you have in this passage in the beginning of Matthew is this rich teaching, and it's the first one that Jesus sort of gives loud. So far in Matthew, he's been called Emmanuel, God with us. There's all these stories that sort of image him to Moses. As we were finishing Deuteronomy, we've talked about a lot how Moses goes up and expounds a law for the people of Israel. So Jesus goes up on a mountain and expounds a law for the church, expounds this thing 
the sermon for the church that is both grace and law. I shouldn't say it's law. Um, and so there's all this sort of interlaid meaning before chapter 5 in Matthew, but all he's really said so far is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Crowds are following him. He's healed people at this point. He's called some disciples. But what does it mean to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is near in the proclamation of this one? And one of the things that, that we, we pray every week when we sing it in that song is that your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I always... Uh, Colorado, the donut place, has one of our posters up. And I have this fear that so many people go, isn't Colorado like heaven? Um, and Colorado as it is in heaven. When in fact, what we're trying to say is to say that your kingdom come in this place, this state, as it is in heaven. Your will be done in Colorado. Colorado is not there yet. And yet, many of the people who come here to get a donut and enjoy the mountains might think, Amen, brother. Hindsight <laughs> <laughs> is twenty twenty. as we say. Um, and so what is this thing, this kingdom of heaven that Jesus then expounds for us in the Sermon on the Mount? Now, one of the things I want to point out is, is this slide says instructions for building a house. And Kara read for us that passage from the end of the sermon. And one of the challenges with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is there are so many angles at which you can fall at and only a few at which you can stand. So classically, the Sermon on the Mount has been read many different ways, and many of them, I think, are angles at which you fall at. One of the uh, first ones that sort of begins to appear is it's an ethic for the real disciples, but the most of the church isn't required to follow that. Helpful news, if true, um, but as Protestants, we try to say that the, the scriptures apply to all of this. And so monasteries are one of these places where it begins to form, and I'm not anti-monastery, but it begins to form to say that we're the people who live the Sermon on the Mount so that the rest of you can live normal lives. The next is, is this thing that, that sort of appears around the Reformation but has a longer history, too, is that the sermon is meant to show the ways in which we can't reach the kingdom of heaven on our own. It's, it shows all the ways we miss the mark. Or in another way, to say that this is reading the sermon purely as law, which throws a weird kink into the attitude because it starts as blessings. It starts as a grace before its commands and teachings. But there's that another way is that the, the sermon, and I mean, I know a couple of people who actually believe that, which is a weird one to me, is that Jesus gives this long teaching just to say, hey, you're your host, um, and so you need me. Um, that's a way, and, and people do the same thing with the Ten Commandments today, too. It's, a, it's only to expose the ways in which we're flawed, rather than to be also a way in which we are instructed to live our lives. Another error we, we, we saw at the early parts of the 1900s was that this was an interim ethic, that, that there were Christians who believed that Jesus taught the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God, um, and since that was delayed, all bets are off. Now, I think that there's a weird thing with that is because I think many of us would find it hard to remain a Christian if that were the case. Um, you know, 
if Jesus taught this thing and he was wrong about the timeline of his return. So in the meantime, we have to uh, invent our own law and our own way of being. It's a deep challenge. And one of the things I would say is that um, some of those people, uh, Albert Schweitzer notably one of them, actually got to work doing intense missions works as doctors and people in the world. Uh, it's a bizarre way to interpret the sermon. It is one that happened at that time. And there are many more ways as we get into the parts of the sermon. There's this idea that, that it's fine for the personal life of the Christian, but when it comes to being in the world, we have to sideline certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount. How would legal systems work if you were required to take an avoidance of oaths and such? This is where we get to the, the two kingdoms theology of Martin Luther, where uh, Augustine's there's the city of God and the city of man. Um, and, and properly understood, both of those actually aren't as bad as they're being made out to be right here, but they do run into that problem, is that this is just for the personal Christian pious life, not for living in the world. The last temptation, and I think most of us are probably familiar with this one, is to individualize. Jesus goes up on a mountain and he calls his disciples to him. And this is an ethic for a community in which he is forming in the world. We'll get into that as it goes on, but, but it's this sort of way of, of looking at this and saying, it's up for me to become all these things by myself. When in fact, Jesus is forming a people. A people that was called to Israel and is now being called the church as a way to live this in the world. It's not just for individuals, but it's for a group of people. And so what, what Care read for us is at the end is that whoever hears these things and doesn't put them into practice is like somebody who builds their house on the sand. See, if we read the Sermon on the Mount too slow, or if we divide it into really tiny parts, we can miss that at the end, it's instructions for building your house on the rock. And if you build your house on the rock, it can withstand the storms of life. It can withstand the storms and persecutions and trials that come to you. But if you build your house on the sand and storms come, the house will collapse. But the end of the sermon is in some sense for us with all these temptations, the beginning is it calls out for us that we are to hear these things and to put them into practice. That's the first sort of start of all this, is that we are supposed to hear these things and put them into practice. Now, here's one of the things that I thought about a long time as we were getting here starting the sermon. There's, this is a quote from Karl Barth, changed to fit the Sermon on the Mount, I think. As Christians, we ought to live the ethic, the life of the sermon. We are human, however, and so cannot live the sermon perfectly, which it contains at the end, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We ought to therefore both recognize our obligation to live this and our inability, and by that recognition, give glory to God. I think this frees us from, from the legalistic temptation, the individualistic temptation, and the let's not even try temptation. It's to say this is our obligation to live this way. And yet we are human. In, in, in the original quote, Bart is saying that, that as pastors required to speak of God, but because we're human, we can't speak of God. 
Um, and so we have to recognize our obligation and inability. But I think it works with living the sermon, is that we will be flawed upon the way. The one who lived the sermon perfectly for us in Jesus Christ is one who paves the way for us, but is one who accepts that we are flawed in our ways of doing it. And instead of saying, as, as that way of saying the sermon just proves that we're enabled, it says that we ought to therefore recognize our obligation, that we are called to live this way as a church, to be this way in the world, in our inability. To have grace within it. And by that very recognition, give glory to God. That God receives glory in that way. And so these are sort of the ways in which we um, can set up the sermon on the outside. Is that it is a binding ethic for our lives so that we are the ones who hear these words and put them into practice. But not only that, there's, there's at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, he says, teaching all these things I've commanded you is what you're supposed to go forth and do. It's not just for us. In some weird way, this is also our missionary sort of posture, our way of sharing the good news. We are to teach everything that God has commanded to us. It's interesting that that takes place on a mountain. This takes place on the mountain. Some people try to conjure up that they're the same mountain. I don't, there's no answer to that question. But that he is reminding them again of the things that he has commanded them. That he is to go and be this way, or that they're supposed to go forth with this news upon them, this call. And so this is not just a grace or a law for us, but it's also a grace in many ways. Now one of the things that we can notice at the start of the sermon is that Jesus calls the disciples to him. At this moment, there are four disciples, I think, although it's not clear what the where the Sermon on the Mount is, is if the Gospel of Matthew is being told chronologically, per se, or if this is him putting the teaching at the front so that we would know what the kingdom of heaven he's talking about is. But anyways, um, there's Jesus calls his disciples to him, and that's sort of that Jesus is the cross, because that's as good of drawing as I get. And then the circle with the arrows in is the disciples being drawn into this effort. And what happens is the crowds are those on the outside. They, too, are amazed at the end of this teaching. But in the Gospels, there's this tension always between disciples and crowds. Crowds follow Jesus for miracles, gifts. They like the way he teaches and speaks. And then there are those who move into the, his realm, his kingdom, his practice, and begin to function and live in that way and take that ethic on in their life. And so, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he calls forth the disciples to lay out this ethic before them. And the crowds are overhearers of that. We can conjure, if we'd like, that some decide to become disciples through hearing the ethic, but that's not told to us. But that he is sort of speaking the truth of what his people are to be in the world at this moment. He's calling them out to sort of teach them in front of an audience of what they are to be in the world. How the disciples are supposed to live and be. And so his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. 
Then when Jesus saw the crowds, yeah, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Then Jesus goes up and he begins to teach and explain to them. Later in the sermon, he's going to say that there are those who sit in Moses' seat um, and you should listen to them. What Jesus does at the beginning is sort of becomes Moses. So there are those who follow his teaching, and then there is the one who expounds the teaching, who, who gives the teaching, the one who's met with God in, in the Old Testament says, or is God in the New Testament says, giving the teaching. And so what Jesus is, is showing at this moment is that he is the one who is giving this teaching out. He's not the originator in some ways, and since we have mirrors of this in the Old Testament, particularly with the blessings and the Beatitudes, but everything else, but he is the one expounding this now as one who is teaching everyone on this. And mountains play an interesting role in the book of Matthew. There's the book, the, the Transfiguration takes place on a mountain, the Great Commission at the end, um, that, that there are these sort of thin places where people receive something from God. And Jesus is teaching these things out into them. He's teaching them what does it mean to be in this way. And so at the start of the sermon, what Christ is doing is forming a community of disciples. Now this part of the temptation that I think we'd like to resist here at the Farmers Church as best as we can is there aren't those who practice the Sermon on the Mount and there are those who come to church. And this is something that changes around 400 AD more particularly, but but is, is still exists with us today is that there are people who come to church and then there are people who are meant to live this out, to be in this way. Anabaptism, the tradition that the Fiance Church comes from, worked as hard as any tradition to demolish that wall. To say that if you come to church, put your, uh, how did they say it in the last church? Put your shoulder to the plow. You get, you get to visit twice, but after the second time, you have to put your, shout, uh, your shoulder to the plow um, and take on the work and start doing and being the people of God together. Um, incidentally, kept their churches very small as well and spread out throughout the world. Um, so you've got that going for you. Um, but in some sense, they, they tried, and this is, we see it in early Methodism and some other place. Early Christianity is one of the highest places, monasteries, that there are these places that actually say, you know, this is sort of the constitution of who we are to be. This is who we are called to be and to interact in the world and take it to heart. There's no, I'm, I'm, I've come to church, but I don't really practice this stuff in these communities. And I think one of our goals here is in grace to also say, this is for all of us become and to be this way. Sure, in its own particular form, in the way that only you can do it, but also it's there for all of us. We discern and live this life out together. We call to be a, a, a colony of heaven, I think as Peterson says, in the country of death is sort of the call of the church. What does it mean to be a witness You've been around here long enough. One of the words I use often for what we are called to be as a church is a witness to this reign of God, this kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming in the world, is to, is to be that spot in which we can see these things practiced and brought into the world. 
it is a high call for the church. Um, one of the early critics of Christianity, I think 200 AD, said, I've read your teachings on how somebody's supposed to live. It's very inspirational. Nobody can do it. Um, this is, it's weird because we often think, we're more often called hypocrites and all sorts of other stuff. This person just read it and was like, well, that's nice, but nobody's going to be able to pull it off. Um, that was one of his early criticisms of, of Christianity. Um, and yet the church proclaims that it is for us, called forth by Jesus, to attempt to live this, to recognize our both obligation and to be graceful in our inability to do so. So this brings us to the start of the sermon today, which is the Beatitudes. It begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I started with this idea that there are multiple angles at which we can fall at. The, the Beatitudes are the most difficult thing to interpret in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, hands down. You can disagree with me. I read for hours this week. And normally, I read a lot of commentaries, and David gives me a hard time about that, um, because I want to know what the tradition says and how other people are thinking through this. And I read, and like with Deuteronomy, at some point I'm like, okay, these four say basically the same thing every time. These ones are a little bit different. This one, if I want to spin, I can go to it, but it's a little out there. On the Beatitudes, as I read, many people who are within the same wheelhouse of Christianity, per se, none of them agree on how to interpret these blessings that Jesus speaks to us. For instance, the start with the first word, blessed are the poor in spirit. Other people translate that today in the modern world as happy, which is a decent translation of the Greek word, but then when you get to the second one or the third, happy are those who mourn does not seem like something you want to proclaim in the world. Fortunate is another way that, that English can capture this Greek word too. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. Sometimes we complain about churchy words. I think like blessed is like, let's keep it that way because it's the most vague on what actually might be meant. Um, uh, that we can sort of deal with that. Um, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what we see happening in each of the Beatitudes, and, and we'll spend a little bit more time on this one, one, because it's the most complex, um, and two, because it, I think it'll help us go through the rest of the Beatitudes, is what's proclaimed often is one thing. Um, and so to, let's go back for a sec. One of the things, the ways that you can read the Beatitudes as if it's a checklist for me in my spiritual life. This is a very old interpretation of the Beatitudes. It's almost, um, some commentators will call it an ascent for the soul. Your gateway is being poor in spirit, and then you learn this, and then you learn this, and, and so you move through the path of becoming um, of the blessed one by God by taking on each of these virtues, although some of them don't seem much like virtues. That's one of the ways of interpreting the Beatitudes. Um, another is, is to completely... Um, uh, to say that Jesus, in some sense with these crowds, and I don't think this one is, is particularly that bad, is sort of doing a roll call of the people who have followed him. He's saying, where are the poor? Where are those who mourn? Where are those who work for peace? 
where are those persecuted? He's, he's sort of doing a call on the group to say, is everybody here? What does the kingdom mean for them? Second is, uh, this one comes from Robert Schuller. Anybody remember him? Of course, the big eagle guy. He called them the be happy attitudes, um, which I think might, I rebel against that one as one of the worst, but there's a lot going into that. But it's, it's attitudes you have in the world. You, you take these on as attitudes for yourself. There's another way, which I think is a little bit deeper, in which the church is a multifaceted thing of people, and Christ is calling out the individuals who make it up. Who is mourning amongst your community? Who is a peacemaker amongst your community? Who is one who is persecuted among your community? Jesus is blessing what his body will be in the world. Jesus is blessing these people who will make this up. And there's this way in which this um, teaching, uh, as its blessings can be punted off to the next world too much, I think. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's a tension here of, of in, in, in Christian theology, we call this the already and the not yet. Of that, I think when Jesus proclaims the kingdom, he's saying that it is already here in your midst. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. How are we inheriting the kingdom of the heaven amongst the poor in spirit today? Or we just say, well, it's, it's, it's good news for later. Um, just put it in the back of your pocket and you'll remember that you're mourning now but God will comfort you someday. And I think that one of the challenges of, 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 of interpreting these things in the Sermon on the Mount and much of the New Testament is this, is this, how is this already and how is this not yet in this world? We have the beginning of the seed of this thing and yet and, and Christians for this temptation on the other side is, is to proclaim its fulfillment is too much. Proclaim that, that you've already been comforted, that you already are a child of God. It doesn't seem like we're there. The breast of the turn the heart for they shall see God. It seems like we're, we're not all the way there yet. So how do we keep both of these things together? There's something for us now and there's a fulfillment and a fullness to it that comes later. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has announced already. And so there's this way in which I think it gives us two frames of sort of looking at the world, where I've used this analogy before of, of, of bifocals or glasses, you know, is that you, you see the world as it is, and Christians should be very capable of seeing the world as it is and its dysfunction, in its um, violence, in its tearing apart, and then also in some of its goodness and blessing as well. It's easy to see that to some degree, or it's not easy, but we should be heightened at that. But what we do when we put on the, the Beatitudes as a way of looking at the world, or, or other things, when we're filled with the Spirit, we begin to see it in a different tone as well. That these are people who will inherit the kingdom. That this person is one who will see God. 
We begin to see the world in its two ways. This is another way of talking about that already and not yet of, of this sermon. And so what they do in the moment for us is I think they make hope. Somebody said redemption is beyond history, is the basis for hope within history, affecting what is possible within history. So uh, this Beatitudes is what is beyond history. And because it's a true possibility of outside of history, it gives us hope in the present. And in that hopefulness and the truth of it, it affects what is possible now within history. It proclaims something that, that the kingdom is making a dent in the machinery of the world as is. It engenders hope and makes the present uh, tolerable in some ways. It brings us into life. One of the ways Luke says, blessed are the poor. I think there's an economic sort of um, component to this. Um, I think that there's also a way in which if you flesh out what the poor is in the Old Testament, it's this sort of righteousness people who don't have their own security in the world. It's very hard. People like to weaponize, I think, Luke's blessing of the poor and woe to the rich today. And I think that's a bit of an error. I think that this blessed are the poor in spirit captures exactly what Luke's saying as well as Matthew. And it also includes being economically fraught. I don't think uh, you can write that off either in Matthew or in Luke. There's this sense in which this is true poverty they're talking about. And it's because, and we'll see this in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in the Beatitudes, that Jesus blesses people who lack, he blesses people who help, and he has no good news for people who can do it all themselves. Um, and so to be poor, to mourn, to, to not have, to be in lack is in some ways the type of people Jesus says, you're ready to mourn. You're ready to displace. I've got it all together, which clearly today I did not. Uh, PowerPoint, everything else. Um, you, you can't really access this point. There needs to be something that you see as lack in your world. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The, the, here the, the Beatitudes hit, I think, a real stride in that what you're lacking, you're actually promised. What, where you are is something you will receive. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. And this is one the tradition has said. Well, the, these people on the, on the pyramid going up to heaven, these people are obviously mourning their sins, um, which I think is a fun interpretation. It, but I think it's more likely that they they're mourning the brokenness of the world. They're mourning the ways in which they have lost or at the bottom. They sit in, in a world full of death at times. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God has this great comfort for us. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land, is another way to put this. Meek, we, we often think of as weak, um, not just because they spelled the same in English. Close, sorry. Um, I know they're not spelled the same. Um, but 
what actually is, is Jesus and Moses particularly are described as meek at different times. And I think when you think of meekness, for me, it's helpful to think of Jesus in the scenes where he's with Pilate and being questioned. Is he's one who, who has, in some sense, greater authority and the answers and knows how things every how everything's going to turn out, and yet does very little to defend himself at that moment because he trusts in the way that God will turn things out. To be meek is not to be weak, but to be meek is to know that God is the one who defends and guides. God is the one who will set the world to right someday. And it's not entirely for you to make it happen. Part of this is because we are horrible at being God as well. I will do this so that I will make sure that the kingdom will come are like famous last words. Um, don't try that. But hope in a God who brings the kingdom. For they shall inherit the earth and the land, is to say that they will get, if you're meek in that way, you're not fighting and clawing for every inch. And in that way, when at the end of this is fulfilled, you are given it all. Bonhoeffer, one of the great commentators on the Sermon on the Mount from this century, talked about how that God loves the earth and sent his son to the earth and he died for the earth. His point is to renew the earth and so these people are given the earth. To correct some of our escapist mentality here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. You hunger and thirst. What's coming for you is filling. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, this is classic Protestant Catholic divide. Is are we hungry and thirsting after our own righteousness? Hungry and thirsting to be righteous in the world, which is I think probably what Matthew means, or hungry and thirst and thirsting for God's rightness to come in the world. This in the New Testament righteousness is one of the words that could could, uh, I don't think it would be wise to, but it could be translated justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's justice in the world, because in the end, God will put it right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be just themselves, for they will be filled. God is calling out those who hunger and thirst. And this is where um, the, the sermon sort of moves from those who are in a position of lack to those who are doing something. And oftentimes, we think of these people as naive or optimistic, um, because it gets worse. Blessed are the merciful. Um, we, we think there's a point to being merciful, but don't go too far. Um, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Lord's Prayer again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive um, those who sin. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Mercy in Matthew's gospel is tied up in so many ways on, on people who can't give it, don't receive it. There's parables about it. There's, there's this way in which you forgive a little, uh, God, a guy forgives you so much, and you go out and you hold two pennies over somebody's head, and what happens is that you're thrown into utter darkness because you can't live in the graciousness of mercy. Blessed are those who can be merciful in a world that teaches us pretty much the opposite all the time, and to only do it within reason and to be sure if you're going to get a result. For in the end, that's where they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is another one where it's 
we can view these people as naive or something like that. Blessed are the pure in heart. And, and this is the end or the beginning part of Deuteronomy where we have three sermons and lots of instructions on no idolatry. Um, that God doesn't want his people to be divided in their loyalties. Heart is, is the way in which, heart is the organ in which we see God because the heart is the seat of emotions. It is the will. It is all these things bound in one. And for that to be pure enables us to see God. We're not pulled in all sorts of directions. There's a uni unity of it. Um, it opens up the rest. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is particularly one where we say, this is fine for you in your neighborhood, but when it comes to the real world, it's not, it's not gonna work. Um, and so again, we, we have this way of saying, and I've dealt with this in my own life. People are like, well, can't we just all work it out? I'm like, have you been paying attention? <laughs> no. Um, and yet what God is blessing here is those people who continually strive to be peacemakers in the world. And peacemaking will work, sign me up. Um, when it seems too hard, I'm the quickest one to be like, well, maybe we should just go our separate ways. Um, and yet, God is saying that blessed are these people, for they shall be called children of God. There's, a, there's an interpretation of this one um, that comes out of sort of what Judaism is like at the time, in that they believe that God is the one who makes peace on earth. Isn't bad news, I guess. Um, but that when we become peacemakers, we become like the sons and children of God. That we participate in what God's work is, making peace on earth. These are ones we easily write off as, as optimistic. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one I learned in college because a lot of, I went to a secular, very post-Christian college, and a lot of what we could get persecuted for was not for righteousness. Um, we were just being a jerk. Um, uh, he was trying to teach about philosophy, and he kept saying, can we debate whether God is real or not? And at some point, you were in the wrong room. Um, uh, and so you weren't persecuted for righteousness' sake. You were just getting what you were for being a pain. And I think Christians need to learn this one, because oftentimes when we think we're being persecuted, we should check and say, is this for righteousness' sake? Or was I just setting myself up for this, to be able to take on this pain? And going back to peacemakers, that we do need people like that in the world, particularly as the election season is coming. I think blessed are the peacemakers, because that is one of the highest things. And to be a non-anxious presence in the world is perhaps the greatest goal for the church during this season, is to live free from that. But blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Also calls out for us to be the people who stand in the middle for something. That, that, that we can be the ones who are like, well, why aren't you more on this side? Why aren't you more on this side? The, the people, if you're in a war and you're standing in the middle, you're getting shot at from both sides. Um, and so to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, during this time might be to be get hit at from both sides. And what this means individually, politically, we can talk about whatever, but I just think we're entering into a period where peacemakers and being willing to be persecuted because of righteousness is going to be a high demand for us. This year is the first commandment 
And this whole thing is sort of this exposition of the kingdom for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends with this one that's direct more to the crowd there, it seems like. Because Matthew's community is going through an intense separation, many scholars think, with the synagogue. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. The same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christians today, because of many of the things we believe, can be have be persecuted and have false things and all kinds of evil said against us. And so what we do is we adapt, which is not being able to stand with, to hear the blessing that Christ has proclaimed for us. This will happen. Rejoice and be glad in it, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they did this, the prophets before you. This brings us to the final point of today's sermon. Um, uh, this is on the back of the bulletin. Anyone who reads Matthew's text attentively will realize that the Beatitudes present a sort of veiled interior biography of Jesus, a kind of portrait of his figure. He is the one who has no place to uh, lay his head is truly poor. He who can say to me, come to me, for I am meek and lonely of heart, is truly meek. He is the one who is pure of heart and so unceasingly beholds God. He is the peacemaker. He is the one who suffers for God's sake. The Beatitudes display the mystery of Christ himself, and they call us into communion with him. But precisely because of this hidden Christological character, the Beatitudes are also a roadmap to the church. It recognizes them the model for what she herself should be. There are directions for discipleship, directions that concern every individual, even though, according to the various callings, they do so differently for each person. What Pope Benedict is saying here is that the Beatitudes proclaim for us who Christ is. The whole Sermon on the Mount teaches us who Christ is. It's about Jesus. It's about the one who comes to us and rescues us. Before we get too far down the road of trying to muscle our way to all the Beatitudes, we have to first see the one whom they are true of the most. The one who comes to us, who is God with us. The one who saves us and sets us on the path of holiness. It is only he, these Beatitudes say, blessed are you. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. God, we hear your blessings over your church. We are those who mourn. We are those called to be poor in spirit. For those who are meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, for our mercy, pure in heart and peacemakers who persecuted all flesh. We are called to be your body in the world. So in the ways that you went before us and were these things for our sake and for our salvation. 
just hearing this. And here that all that's possible within the frame of our existence is not all that's true. But there's a deeper and truer lens, a deeper and stronger way that can only the disciples can see this great reversal of our undertaking in the world. And that's to speak these four words in the name of the Father and the Son. Thank you.